morning we're going to pick back up in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First Corinthians chapter 7 certainly has its share of interpretive difficulties. Um, there are, are several um, verses in this chapter that are just uh, hard to understand, and, and they can be taken a number of ways. And uh, You read one commentator, and he says one thing that sounds very plausible, and then you read another one, and he says something that sounds very plausible. And the truth of the matter is, uh, we, we must be humble, and we must realize that... Um, that we don't have all knowledge, that we don't possess all understanding. I'm going to preach this morning, verses 7 through 9, to the best of my understanding, based upon my interpreting and, and studying of this passage, but I, I humble myself before you that, that uh, upon further study there could, be, there could be something that I have not seen, something that I have not missed. Uh, but I, let me encourage you with this. There is one infallible teacher of the Word of God, and that's the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God is able to illuminate our hearts and minds, and we're able to see things in uh, the text. I have enjoyed talking with other preachers as I've been preaching through 1 Corinthians and bouncing different things off of different people and hearing different, different uh, views of, of the text. Um, and I appreciate what what Paul has written to this church. Let me read to you our text this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 7. These are the words of God. For I would that all men were even as I myself. But every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner, another after that. I say therefore to the unmarried and widows that it is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain... Let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. <laughs> this is our 31st sermon in the exposition of 1 Corinthians. If you factor in the breaks that we've, ta we've taken, I have been preaching from this book for over a year now, and we're not even halfway through it. All of the sermons in this book are on our sermon audio. You can go back and listen to any of them, so... If you join this church or if you've been with us uh, halfway through our study thus far, maybe in your spare time, if you are a sermon listener, you can go back to the beginning and pick up from, from the beginning of this exposition. But on Sermon Audio, uh, broadcasters can view their sermon stats. And they're able to see the, the statistics of the sermons. And I, I don't check it very often, but... Uh, for whatever reason, this, this past week, I went on Sermon Audio and checked our sermon stats. And last week's sermon on verses 1 through 6 of this chapter became the second most played sermon on our Sermon Audio in only a few days. And it's one of the most popular sermons on our Sermon Audio ever since we started it. I had folks this week that messaged me and told me that they appreciated last week's sermon. Well, this tells me two things, and one of them is not that it was just some great message that I preached. It's not what it tells me. <laughs> I'd like to believe that, but I know myself better. It tells me, number one, that there is a great interest for teachings on these subjects, marriage and intimacy and relationships, courtship. 
how to be a, a godly husband, how to be a godly wife. There's interest in, in hearing teachings on these things. But it also tells me that such teaching can be hard to find. Once you get past the superficial, you know, let me give you a devotional in Proverbs 31, and let me walk you through Ephesians 5. And, and, but to dig down into the, the texts that are maybe somewhat difficult, maybe somewhat awkward, such as 1 Corinthians 7, there's not a lot of people that are doing that in their churches. And it is true that chapter 7 contains some difficult subjects. It's a chapter that's, that's scarcely preached. If I were not preaching through the book, if I, if I organized my sermons by just waking up Sunday morning and deciding what I think the church needs, I probably would never come to 1 Corinthians 7. But we cannot avoid things in the Word of God just because they are awkward or difficult to talk about. We, as God's people, need this. This is real life for real people. This chapter is painfully practical because it deals with a subject that applies to everyone. Everyone here, everyone living, is either married, single, planning to get married, divorced and remarried, widowed or a widower, but in some way, shape, or form, they either have relations with the opposite sex or they are single and abstain from relationships with the opposite sex. But it's a topic that applies across the board. Applies across the board. And this chapter addresses all of the above. Paul speaks specifically to each one of the groups that I just mentioned. So the sermons in this chapter, as I've divided it down, we still have three to four weeks left here in, in 1 Corinthians 7. They might not be flashy, and they, they might not be the most uh, emotionally driven sermons that you would hear. They might not make you want to shout amen. In fact, some of them might make you want to shout ouch, if you're like me, as I read through this text and study it for myself. But I promise you that if you apply these biblical principles to your life, whatever state that you're in, you will be blessed for it. You will be blessed for it. And our church... Our society will only be as strong as the marriages that make them up and the, the single servants of the Lord that make them up. But we must, we must master this area in our lives if we are going to truly be effective for Jesus Christ in the long run. Before we launch into our text, I want to add this word of encouragement. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, God does not want you living with the guilt for previous sins. This is a chapter that will confront very practical sins that, that, that are very prevalent in our society. And as you study this chapter, and as we preach through this chapter, it's, there's a possibility that we might hit on a previous experience in your life or in my life and the Word of God will boldly tell us that there was a time in which we sinned against God and we, we messed up in a serious way. But God does not want us living with the guilt and the shame of, of our previous sins. If you are in Christ, sins that you committed <coughs> with a spouse prior to marriage, sins that you committed while married, sins that you commit while single, sins that you commit that into marriage. God has sent Jesus Christ into the world to die for those sins. 
so that you don't have to bear the guilt and the shame of those sins. And Paul does not write chapter 7 to to make you feel bad about your previous sins, but to give you principles so that you don't commit them again. But there's a flip side to this encouragement. We're not to walk around with the guilt and shame of previous mistakes. Jesus has died to forgive us of our sins. He's purchased a full forgiveness. But, apart from repentance, you will never experience that forgiveness. What do I mean by experience that forgiveness? Well, the forgiveness is secured for you, but sometimes, even though you're a Christian and you're forgiven, the reason why you feel the guilt and shame for your sins is because you refuse to acknowledge them and confess them and repent of them. You you, you hold them back and you justify them. The reason why you still feel the shame and guilt and embarrassment from your sins is because when the Spirit of God convicts you, instead of responding with repentance, you respond with pride. So if the Spirit convicts you of sin relating to your marriage, your relationships, the way you treat your spouse, sins you commit in your single life, whatever the case may be, don't defend yourself with excuses and say, well, you don't know my situation, or you don't know what circumstances I was under. No. Confess your sins to God, repent of them, and receive the forgiveness that Christ has secured for you. Now you know that chapter 7 is organized according to this correspondence that Paul had with the Corinthian church. As they wrote to him and, and asked questions and perhaps made statements, and then Paul would write back, and he wrote to them, with a host of answers. And chapters 7 through 16 are divided topically. When we get into chapter 8, we'll start dealing with meat sacrifice to idols and Christian liberty and so on and so forth. But in chapter 7, Paul is dealing with the subject of marriage. And the Corinthians apparently had a lot of questions and a lot of thoughts on marriage. Verses 1 through 6 concern the subtopic of intimacy in marriage. Paul spoke directly to husbands and wives concerning their relationship, their physical relationship with one another. Now in verses 7 through 9, he's he's speaking to a different group. And that group is those who are not currently married. Those who are not currently married. Some have interpreted these verses as Paul teaching that it's best for the unmarried to remain single. And that that's what they should seek to do, remain single, don't get married. But if you can't do that, marriage is a second best option. Let me say to you, that is patently not what Paul is saying. As we affirmed last week, singleness is not better than marriage, nor is marriage better than singleness, and neither one of them determine your spirituality. Rather than reading this text as a blanket generalized statement, of what's best for the unmarried, I believe it's more accurate to view this text as Paul's encouragement to those who are not presently married, writing to them to encourage them in the current stage of life that they find themselves in. So I've entitled this sermon, Encouragement for the Demarried. Encouragement for the Demarried. And I'll I'll have to explain that phrase, the demarried. I admit that I made it up. Because as as we'll see as we get into this text, Paul is speaking to a group that's even more specific than just all people who are not married. His focus is even more narrow. 
But let's begin in verse 7. We'll, we'll get to the, explaining the demarried, but we need, to, we need to start at verse 7 here. And I want you to see in verse 7 the proper gift. The proper gift. Verse 7 says, For I would that all men were even as I myself, but every man hath his proper gift of God. There, there we see it. <laughs> One after this manner and another after that. This verse is the proof text for the infamous gift of singleness. You can go online and you can find Christian articles and blogs about the gift of singleness and speculations of what it is and who has it and who doesn't have it and how to know if you have it. The number one question that unmarried people want to know, when I taught in high school, uh, I taught a, a, a class to the seniors on Christian worldview. And of course, when we got to the theology of the family, we had to spend an hour answering the question, how do I know if I have the gift of singleness? Everybody wants to know that. But what, do you, what even is the gift of singleness? Is, the, is there such a thing as the gift of singleness? Paul answers that for us. Notice he says, For I would that all men were even as I myself. We have to ask the question, well, what was Paul? As I myself, what was he? Well, Paul wrote as someone who was currently unmarried. Paul was not married throughout his apostolic ministry. And some will interpret this verse saying that Paul, Paul is saying here, this is, this is what they say, I wish that everyone was single just like me. That's how you often hear people interpret verse 7. Paul is saying that, hey, follow me, be single like me, don't get married. If everyone could just be single and not tied down with a family, all the burdens that come from that, just imagine how many full-time, sold-out servants of the Lord that we would have. And then later in verse 9, Paul will say something to the effect, well, but if you can't be single, I guess you can get married if you have to. Is that really what Paul is saying? I don't believe that it is. I don't believe that it is because of what he says next. He says, but every man hath his proper gift of God. One after this manner, one after that manner. In other words, Paul is saying that I am the way that I am, not because I have achieved this super state of spirituality, but because of the gift that God has given me. Whether you're single or married has nothing to do with how spiritual you are or how devoted you are to the service of God. Your marital status depends on the gifts that God gives you. Each of these gifts has its own blessings. Each of these gifts has its own advantages, and each of these gifts are accompanied with the grace needed to receive the gift. God gives grace to singles to serve Him in their singleness. God gives grace to the married to serve Him in their marriage. When Paul says, I would that all men were even as I myself, he is not making a blanket statement that it would be better for all men to be single like him. He is saying that singleness is the gift that God has given him, and he receives that gift as a blessing, and he acknowledges that gift as a good thing. Paul does not lament his singleness. He does not say, woe is me because I don't have a wife. He is thankful and he is content with what God has given him at this stage in his life. Had Paul been married, he would have said the same thing. I would that all men were even as I myself. 
Because both singleness and marriage are good gifts from God. Paul is not urging that one gift is better than the other. What he's urging when he says, I wish that all men were even as I myself, not that you had one gift or the other, but that whatever gift you have, I would that you would receive it with gladness like I received the gift that God has given me. So back to the question of the hour. How do you know if you have the gift of singleness? Well, I'm looking out to a room of people that, with the exception of two, you don't have the gift of singleness. How do you know if you have the gift of singleness? Well, how do you know if you have the gift of marriage? You know you have the gift of marriage because you're married. That's the gift that God has given you. So how do you know that you have the gift of singleness? Well, if you're not married, you're single. Now, I know the culture you know, tells us otherwise that, well, I'm, I'm taken or whatever that means. Now, if you're not married, you're single, biblically. Biblical definition, you're single. And you have the gift of singleness. You, you don't have a covenant before God with another person as, as their spouse. You have not taken them as your lawfully wedded husband or wife. You are single. You say, well, this singleness does not feel like a gift to me. If anything, it feels like a curse. I don't want to be single. That's why I date all of these random people. And that's why I chase after a relationship. And that's why I seek a wife and seek a husband. Well, the reason why your singleness doesn't seem like a gift to you is because of your ungrateful heart that doesn't receive God's gift as a good thing. The problem is not with what God has given you. The problem is with your self-centered discontentment. That's why Paul says... I wish you were like me. I, I wish you could receive the gift of singleness with joy and gladness and thanksgiving. That's, that's what Paul is doing in this text. He is encouraging the singles. He's encouraging specifically the demarried, but it applies to all the singles. He, he's encouraging them. Don't feel like something is wrong with you. Don't feel like you have to spin your wheels chasing after a mate and a companion. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. Now, if you're single, there is absolutely nothing wrong with praying for, desiring, and searching a godly spouse. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you're searching for a spouse just because you really hate being single... Number one, you're searching for the wrong reason. And number two, you're not ready for a spouse. If you're not content in Christ as a single person, you won't be content in marriage. You must first find your identity, satisfaction, and fulfillment in Christ. And only then are you ready for marriage. I've heard it so many times. I want to marry so-and-so because they just complete me. No, they don't. They don't complete you. Your husband doesn't complete you. Your wife doesn't complete you. The only one that can complete you is Jesus Christ. And by, by saying, well, they complete me, you are placing a burden on them that they will never live up to. Here's what will happen. 
If you have this unbiblical view of, of a husband or a wife, when you're married, when you, when you do have a spouse, and when you hit a rough patch, when you're just not feeling it, instead of begging God to help you to receive the gift of marriage with joy and gladness again, instead of realizing that the problem lies within your own heart, you will blame your spouse. What's wrong with you? You're not completing me anymore. You don't make me as happy as you did when we were on our honeymoon. I'm not as satisfied in you as I once was, and I haven't changed, so you must be the problem. The problem, though, is that you were never satisfied with Christ to begin with. You were looking to another sinner just like you, someone who fails just like you, someone who struggles just like you, to complete you. See the problem with that? If you take two half-empty gas tanks and you rely on one to complete the other, what are you going to be left with? You're going to be left with one that's completely empty. But if both of those half-empty gas tanks are filled externally from a never-exhausted source, both of them will be completed. So Paul says, I wish everyone could be like me and receive God's gifts with gladness and with contentment. Notice that verse 7 calls it the proper gift. He says in verse 7, Every man hath his proper gift. It's your proper gift. Is singleness God's will for your life? Are you single? If so, then yes. Is, now, is, it, is it forever God's will for your life? That remains to be unknown. Is marriage God's will for your life? Are you married? Then, then yes, that is God's will for your life. And apart from death, it will always be God's will for your life. Notice God did not make a mistake in the gifts that he's given you. And don't feel this pressure to I, need to, I need to get out of this condition that I'm in. Rather, ask yourself, how do I serve God in this stage of life that he has brought me to? If you're single, how do you, serve, how do you maximize your singleness to serve God? If you're a young married couple, perhaps one with a newborn, the question is not, how do I get through this newborn phase so I can serve God to the best of my ability? The, the question that I need to ask myself is, how do I maximize this stage that God has me in to serve Him to the best of my abilities through my family, through my child? If you're empty nesters, you're on the other end of the spectrum, how do you maximize that to serve God? There's, there's some things you can do now that you couldn't do when you had four or five kids at the house. But there's some things you can do with children at the house that you can't do once they're grown and gone. We ought not be looking to, how do we get out of this situation to a better one? Because here's the problem with discontentment. Discontentment is discontent. So as soon as you get into that next stage, the grass is always greener on the other side, what's going to happen? You say, oh, I just really want to be married. I just really want to be married. And then you get married and you realize that you had an unbiblical view of marriage you think you're suddenly going to be content if you weren't content in Christ already? Every man hath his proper gift. And Paul received the gift of singleness with gladness, with joy. And he, and he looked at 
he looked at it as, God has given me this gift. I can serve him in a way that I couldn't if I was still married, still tied down, still had those obligations. But for those of us that are married, we need to receive that gift with gladness. Don't look at your family like a burden that keeps you from serving the Lord. God has the gift that God has given you. You serve the Lord through that family, through that blessing, through that gift. That's where He has you. Notice verse 8, though. I want you to see the prescribed goodness. The prescribed goodness. That comes from the, the, the verse where he says, It is good for them. They abide, even as I. There's nothing wrong with your singleness. It says in verse, uh, verse 8, I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows. To the unmarried and widows. Therefore, because of the principle he's just laid out that everyone has their proper gift, now he's going to talk to the unmarried and the widows. Paul will now apply this principle to these specific categories. Well, what are these categories? Well, we all know what a widow is. A widow is a woman who has lost her husband through death. But who does Paul have in mind when he speaks to the unmarried? Some say that this is a broad reference to just anyone that doesn't have a spouse. No matter what your situation is, if you don't have a spouse, that's who Paul is talking to here. But that doesn't really make much sense because obviously widows are a part of that group. So was Paul saying, I'm talking to the unmarried, which would include widows, and then, and widows? Hmm. Why not just say to all the unmarried, if that were the case? Furthermore, that interpretation of the word unmarried is inconsistent with the balance of this chapter. Throughout chapter 7, Paul, he never refers to a single group. He's always referring to two people or two parties, and they're complementary. In verses 2, 3, and 4, he refers to a husband and a wife. In verse 12, he refers to a Christian husband and an unbelieving wife. In verse 13, he refers to a Christian wife and an unbelieving husband. Verse 27, to a husband and a wife. Verse 28, to a husband and a virgin that the husband marries. In verses 33 and 34, he refers to a husband and a wife. Throughout this chapter, Paul addresses complementary groups. Well, what is the complementary group for a widow? What is their counterpart? You know, the word widow is an anomaly in the English language. I, I did a whole word study on this on this word. Because most feminine words in English stem from the masculine word. Right? We have what? We have man and woman. We have actor and actress. We have waiter and waitress. But the masculine word for widow actually stems from the feminine. It's not widow and widowess. It's widow in the feminine and widower in the masculine. And in the Greek, um, in, in verse 8, the word for widow is in the feminine, but the word for unmarried is a specific word used four times in chapter 7 that, that is in the masculine. So I submit to you that when Paul comes to verse 8, 
he's not specifically referencing all unmarried people and then also widows. But the specific address in verse 8 is to widows and widowers. When he says to unmarried and to widows, he specifically has in mind those who have lost their spouse, whether they're men or women, they've lost their spouse through death. Now you understand why I titled this sermon with the phrase, Encouragement for the Demarried. It's more specific than just unmarried. It's those who were married. I think that also heightens the admonition that he's just given us in verse 7. Why do I say that? Well, it's one thing for Paul to just say, you're single, you've never been married, that's God's gift to you. You need to receive that as a, as a good and joyous thing. But how much more difficult it is for Paul to say to someone who has lost their spouse, even this is the goodness of God to you. Even this situation, even in this hardship, God is able to bless you. God is able to be gracious to you. And you are able to serve Him in the midst of this difficulty. Other places, such as verse 25, Paul will specifically address those who have never been married. So he, he talks about that in this chapter. That's another reason, again, why I think he's talking about widows and widowers. Because in verse 25, he will say, now concerning virgins, those who have never been married. But here, his focus is on those who have been married, but are no longer. And he says to them, verse 8, it is good for them. To abide even as I. Now it's it's not good that they have lost their spouse, but it is good in the sense that even in that difficulty, the grace of God, the kindness of God, and the love of God are poured out upon them. God uses his people, God uses his churches to be a blessing in those situations. And God gives them opportunity. Church history is riddled with examples of men and women that lost a spouse and went on to serve the Lord in great ways that they could not have had they not lost their spouse. They didn't thank the Lord for losing their spouse, but they did thank the Lord that though it seemed like a difficult situation that, that provided no hope, God was able to bless them in the midst of that. Quite honestly, I, I tell you, it's something that I, I don't quite frankly understand how some people have done it. How does Elizabeth Elliot, who loses her husband Jim, was murdered by the people that he went to evangelize, do you realize most of the, the books that she wrote and the ministry that she had and all of the wonderful things that she did that we, we remember her still to this day and we read her book still to this day and her devotional still to this day. Most of what God taught her was a result of the pain and the, the difficulty she went through in losing her husband. Perhaps she wouldn't have been such a prolific writer and well-known women's devotional writer and speaker had she not gone through that circumstance in her life. That takes special kind of grace that God promises to give. <coughs> Paul says it is good for them to abide even as I. We noted earlier that Paul was not married during his apostolic ministry. But it's interesting that he, he uses the phrase even as I. 
seems to me that Paul identifies with the demarried. Paul identifies with the one who lost his spouse. And it's not very hard to believe that Paul was a widower himself because we know that prior to his conversion, he was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. He sat on the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council of the day. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He said that about himself. Well, to be on the Sanhedrin, one of the requirements was that you had to be male and you had to be married. No exceptions. Now, we don't know what happened to Paul's wife, but we can pretty safely say that he had one. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been on the Sanhedrin. We know that he didn't have one by the time that he entered into his apostolic ministry. But I believe verse 8, really, in, throughout the entire Bible, this is the, the, the interpretive understanding of that. We can safely say that it seems that Paul was a widower. Paul was not writing to a group of people that he did not identify with. Part of the, the, the challenge to preaching is that you will, if you're going to be faithful to the text, you're going to preach to people that are going through things that you haven't gone through. Thankfully, personally experiencing something is not a prerequisite to being able to preach on it from the Word of God. It's not. Otherwise, most preachers would not be able to preach most of the Bible. <laughs> but it does heighten the sense of understanding when we, when we understand that Paul wrote as someone who experienced this. He said it is good for them to abide even as I. The loss of a spouse brings unimaginable pain and heartache, but even in such times, the goodness of God shines forth and God calls us to embrace his gift to us. To embrace his gift to us. Paul looked back on his life Paul looked back on his experience. Do you think Paul was thinking about that wife that he had? We don't know anything about when he wrote 1 Corinthians 7. When he penned the words, it is good for them to abide even as I. Do you think he considered his unconverted life and, and all that the Lord had done in him and through him, the blessing that he was to be as an apostle to the Gentiles? And he said, it was hard providence. But it was ultimately for my good. My gracious God does all things well. I didn't see it at the time. I didn't realize it at the time. But God blessed me even through that. Perhaps he would have never been able to serve God in the way that he did had he not been a widower. He could have never been gone for years at a time, in and out of prison, not knowing what his next meal would be or if he would even have a next meal. How would he have supported a family? How would he have raised children? You know, Paul, you talk about, talk about uh, preaching on things that you haven't personally experienced. It was Paul that said, he that provideth not for his own house is worse than an infidel. And you could say, well, Paul, you don't have a big family to provide for. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> See, the folly in that kind of, a, that kind of logic. Paul received God's providence and he sought to maximize his usefulness to the kingdom no matter what he was called to endure. This is a lesson that all of us need to learn. See, verse 8 caused me to search my own heart. 
because my wife is my everything. And if the Lord were to take her from me, I wouldn't want to continue serving him. But he would be just in so doing. I don't deserve her. It's the thing about a gift. You don't deserve it. And the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the calling of God upon our life is not to treat our gifts as though they're rights that we deserve. And to say, Lord, if you don't give me these gifts, then I'm not going to serve you. But when the Lord gives, we ought to serve him. When the Lord takes away, we ought to serve him. And if we're not willing to serve the Lord in the difficult times, we don't deserve the privilege of serving him in the good times. So Paul says it's good for them to abide even as I. God gave Paul the grace to serve him as a widower. Do you believe that God is any less gracious today? I know this is a diff different way to approach this passage. I've never really heard it preached this way. Most of the time you hear this preached as, see, here Paul is saying that if you're a widow, you should stay single, but if you can't do that, then I guess you could get married. You know, I'm sorry, but I believe that God is a lot more gracious and understanding than that. And I believe that Paul is writing with a pastoral heart. He really cares about these Corinthians. He really cares about what they're going through. He really wants them to be encouraged in the Lord. God is not giving us a one-size-fits-all mandate in these verses. Rather, He is helping and encouraging those who need it. That's what He's doing here. Fixate your eyes upon the grace of God and see the prescribed goodness in the midst of trials. It is good. It is good. When difficulty comes to you, when hard providence comes into your life, now if that, that providence comes because of sin that you have committed, that you have dealt with, it's not good for you. You need to repent of that sin and confess that sin to God. But when you can honestly say, Lord, you know my heart. You have searched me. You, you know I, I stand clean before you. I've confessed my sins. And yet, these hard things are coming to me. These difficulties are coming to me. You must be able to say within yourself, it is good. It is good for me. That was what Job struggled to do. Worse than being a widower. Losing not only... He lost everything but his wife, really. His whole family. His livelihood. And it was Job that said, The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It is good. It is good. That's the prescribed goodness in the midst of our trials. But look now to verse 9. The problem given. The problem given. Paul has just said that your singleness is good. Okay? And we know that God gives grace to those who have lost a spouse. And yes, God calls widows and widowers to embrace His providence and to struggle to receive their current situation as a gift. But He doesn't bind them to remain single for the rest of their lives. 
you are no more you are no more spiritual if you are a widow or a widower and you remain single for the rest of your life. If that is what God has called you to do, serve Him in that. But if God has not called you to that, do what the Lord has called you to do. So he says in verse 9, how do, so how do we know what he's calling us to do, right? Well, he says, but if they cannot contain, let them marry. Let, if they cannot contain, what, what, does that, what does that mean? What is he talking about? The phrase cannot contain relates to physical temptations that come with singleness. You, you ask, is God contradicting himself in verse 9? You know, he, he said... He said in verse 8 it was good, but now he's saying, let them marry. So which one is it? They're both good. They're both good. One is not better than the other. They both have their advantages. They both have their challenges. They both have their graces. They both have their difficulties. He's not contradicting himself, nor is he giving an exception for those who aren't spiritual enough. It's a a shameful thing. I've heard it in churches. Widowers and widows who are criticized for remarrying. You know, because of some ambiguous, ambiguous, unbiblical view of, well, they should have waited longer or they should have married a different person or whatever the case may be. You are not the Holy Spirit in their life. So is God contradicting himself or giving some kind of exception for those who aren't as spiritual? No, what God is doing in verse 9 is he's adding grace upon grace. God is saying, not only will, will I give you grace to endure the loss of a spouse, not only will I give you the grace to in, embrace your newfound singleness, but you know if it's, if it's the will for your life, I'm going to give you the grace to marry again. If you cannot contain. And there's no shame in saying, I cannot contain. <laughs> that's, just, that's what Paul is saying. And again, it's, it's important to remember the context. Paul is not talking to 18-year-olds struggling with youthful lust. That's not who he's talking about in verse 9. That's, that's how it, 9 times out of 10 when this verse is brought up and preached, it's, it, that's who it's applied to. And there is application there, but... That's not the primary emphasis of this passage. He's talking to those who were married, have experienced the gift of marriage, know what married life is like, and now suddenly, often suddenly, are now back into singleness. The demarried. Why might widows and widowers not be able to contain? Why might they struggle with those temptations? Well, because they were married. They were accustomed to fulfilling those desires with their spouse. And now, suddenly, they're no longer able to do that. And for some of them, yes, God gives the grace to contain. (laughs) But what God does not do at all in this passage or anywhere in the Bible is say, too bad, suck it up, be spiritual, and force yourself to live out your days in singleness. God says, if that is you, let them marry. Let them marry. In fact, this phrase is in the imperative. God is commanding them to marry. 
If you are overcome with temptation, you should get married. That's God's admonition to you. You're not less spiritual if you remarry. You have the full blessing of God to remarry. Why? Verse 9, For it is better to marry than to burn. This, by the way, does not refer to burning an eternal hellfire. Because he's, he's talking to Christians here. He's talking to believers. This doesn't refer to burning in hellfire. It refers to burning in your passions and burning in your lusts. See, here's the argument that Paul's making. Yes, it's good to be single. Because in your singleness, you have the liberty to do things that you can't do when you were married. But if your singleness turns into constant burning, constant struggling, even falling into sexual sin and immorality, all of the blessings of singleness will be null and void if your life is riddled with these struggles. So God says, if your singleness causes you to burn, get married. Get married. He says the same thing to the young widows in Timothy. He admonishes them, get married. Do you not see the grace of an understanding God in this passage? This is the goodness of God. He's not mandating a rule upon us. He's he's giving us liberty in this area. He's giving us liberty. Now, of course, with this liberty comes caveats. Okay, This is not legitimizing a marriage simply for the ability to have intimate relation. That is never the primary purpose of any marriage. Now, when he says, let them marry, God is the one who defines what a godly marriage is, the criteria of a godly marriage. Paul is not advising you to just marry the first person that says yes, just because you have to get married so badly. Paul is saying that in the cases of widowhood, God does not bind you to overwhelming temptation and struggles for the rest of your life. Does verse 9, okay, here's the question, does verse 9 apply to other people who are not widows or widowers? Other unmarried people that, that are not widows or widowers? Well, it might, and it might not. And we have to be careful with it. That, that's why I wanted to bring this context before you. Because this verse has certainly been abused to justify foolish and even unlawful marriages. Foolish and even unlawful marriages. You know, two, two young people that, that are, are dating one another and, and they fall into a lifestyle of sin and so to save face and to, to not embarrass the church or the family or whatever, they say, well, let's hurry up and get them married real quick because, hey, we don't want them to burn. That's foolishness. That's not going to solve the problem. That's going to amplify the problem. There's, there's other examples. I could spend all afternoon going through examples of how this should not be used, but you see the point. We have to be careful in how we apply that. 
Yes, God is gracious, and he's given the gift of marriage for the satisfaction of physical desire, but he alone is the one who defines what a godly marriage is. And you must not use verse 9 as an excuse for anything less than a godly marriage that will glorify Jesus Christ. So, what are some ways to prevent this burning? Well, we know ultimately God has ordained marriage, right? So that we don't have to burn. He's given us marriage so that we don't have to burn. But further, we should understand some people, I'm speaking of younger people, some people burn with passion and lust because their innocence is not protected. Parents, you have a duty to protect the innocency of your children as long as you possibly can. Your 10-year-old daughter should not be worried about having a boyfriend. Your 12-year-old son, he should be more concerned with going outside and building a fort with some sticks in the woods than he should with impressing a girl. Sometimes we burn because we allow ourselves to be in a dating relationship for far too long. And some people do need to just step up to the plate and say, okay, if we're going to continue to spend this much time together, talk this much with each other, share as many things as we share with one another, invest in each other's lives, we need to just step up to the plate, grow up, and commit ourselves before God so that we can enter into this marriage relationship. I'm not a big fan of long engagements. My, my engagement was far too long. I'll be the first to tell you. We, we were engaged for 11 months. And the reason being was that my wife's family was from Canada. And so we, we, we got engaged and then we went to set a date. And I was saying, let's hey, we got a couple months till fall. Let's have a good fall wedding. But the thing was, well, let's get all of her nine siblings one of ten, nine siblings from Canada so that they can all come to the wedding. And then COVID happened and half of them weren't able to make it anyways. <laughs> but what was that period of, of 11 months? It was a long period of burning. How, how many times we said to one another during that period, why can't we just get married already? And by the way, have any of you married couples discovered that marriage is not the cure-all to lust? Sometimes we have this idea, well, as soon as I get married, all of my temptations, all of my... They'll They'll just dissipate. Marriage is a blessing. Marriage will help. But again, if you are not satisfied in Jesus Christ, it's not going to be the cure-all for your sin problem. It's not just going to magically eliminate your struggles. It's not that simple. <laughs> Again, like th- th- this is not a flashy sermon with, with uh, tons of emotional illustration and, and vigor, but it's very practical. It's extremely practical. The whole point of these verses is this. God gives gifts. And God gives the grace that accompany these gifts 
Singleness is a gift. Marriage is a gift. But your satisfaction, your fulfillment, your completion cannot be found in your singleness and it cannot be found in your marriage. You must be complete in Jesus Christ alone. And perhaps there's someone who struggles greatly with where God has them. You're not satisfied in singleness. You're not satisfied in marriage. Whatever the case may be, that could be because you have never found your contentment in Christ. Have you, have you ever received the grace of God, whatever situation that you're in? And a constant, continual, discontent, miserable heart could be an indicator that you do not know the God of joy and love and gladness. Your fulfillment, your contentment may only be found in Jesus Christ. He alone descended from the glories of heaven. He lived a world in which he was dejected from men, which he was betrayed by his friends, which we, he was forsaken by the very people he came to save. And he went to the cross of Calvary and he shed his blood on that cross and he died so that all those who would come to him and would say, Lord, I am miserable. My sins have ruined me. I am not happy. I'm, I'm, I am joyless. He could say, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And Jesus didn't die to make you happy. That's not what I'm saying. But he did die to give you a purpose. Because before you were, you were living for hell itself. Jesus says, come unto Christ, take up your cross, follow me, live for the glory of God. Live for the glory of God. Your life is no longer about just satisfying your desires. Now it's about pleasing God. That becomes your desire. Pleasing God. But only after you have received Christ will you ever be able to be satisfied in singleness or satisfied in marriage. May God give us the grace to receive these things and apply them to our own hearts and our own lives, our own marriages, our own single periods that we might glorify Him wherever He has us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You in Jesus' name for Your goodness to us. We ask, Lord, that You'd humble our hearts and help us, O oh God, help us to, to search the Scriptures, to apply them to our hearts, to apply them to our minds, to embrace the truth that you have set before us. For it's in Christ's name that we pray all things. Amen. Amen.